This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, look, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. So how is that for an unsettling and dark parable? <laughs> Why on earth does God care so much that we wear the right clothes to the wedding banquet? And how about giving the poor fellow in the story a chance? He had just been unexpectedly invited to the party off the street without any time to go buy something nice to wear. How capricious to call him out for looking sloppy and tossing him into the outer darkness. Well, let's see if we can unravel this disturbing story. Part of the answer, I think, is to recognize that the parable is intended as a provocative allegory and that all of the key players in the story would have been well known to Jesus' original listeners. The king is God, or like God. Jesus is the king's son. The slaves are the prophets. The first set of invited guests are the elite religious leaders who are too complacent, preoccupied, or self-satisfied to respond to the king's invitation. The guest list is then expanded to include everyone, commoners and elites alike, the good and the bad. The wedding banquet is that heavenly feast that God desires for all his people, and the poor fellow who is underdressed, well, he is potentially each one of us. The central question posed by the parable is this. How do we, as invited guests, respond to the generous hospitality of the king, a king whose deepest wish for us is to celebrate with him and all those he loves. 
Are we willing to express our gratitude by showing up in our Sunday best? And to cut to the chase, the surprisingly wonderful answer to that question is that we don't actually have to buy any new fancy clothes to accept the invitation because we already have been given the clothes of Christ's righteousness in baptism. The problem is that most of us just haven't taken the trouble to put on our baptismal garment for the world to see. The missing wedding robe, you see, is not a piece of clothing at all, but the fruits of a transformed life. What the king is really asking of the poor guy in the parable is, why don't you show forth in your life the many gifts I have already given you? Why don't you start acting like and looking like the image of God you already are? Or as St. Paul puts it in our epistle lesson today, to follow Christ means to clothe ourselves with whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, and commendable. On this view, the parable of the wedding banquet is ultimately an invitation to lead a fruitful life. Jesus is reminding his hearers that to whom much is given, much is expected. Faithfulness is more than just believing something. Faithfulness is fruitfulness. What the poor guy in the parable doesn't get is that gospel living only begins with the invitation to the party. Its end, its purpose, its destiny is a new way of life that gives visible expression to Christ's love for the world. Now, when you stop to consider it, a wedding banquet is indeed a beautiful metaphor for the Christian life. Some of you were telling me you've been to some weddings recently. I have been and officiated at some weddings recently. And what happens at a wedding, as we all know, is that all of the people who love the bride and the groom gather together in one place. There is plenty of food and drink for all. There is music and dancing and laughter. They are the order of the day. Families and friends who have not seen one another for a long time are reunited. And everyone there marvels at the extraordinary capacity of love to bring people together. There is a timelessness to wedding banquets as we set aside the worries of work and the stress of daily life and instead dwell in the abundant joy of the moment. This is the eternal party to which God is inviting all of us. And so it is perhaps not so surprising that one of the very first things Jesus does in his public ministry, according to St. John, is to show up at a wedding banquet in Cana to change the water into wine so as to ensure that the celebration continues. Likewise, one of the very last images in the New Testament is a vision in the book of Revelation of the wedding feast of the Lamb to which all of God's children are invited. The plain implication of this metaphor is that in the person of Christ, in his coming into the world, in his coming into your life 
and my life, there is something so good, so profoundly, deeply, and powerfully good that the only appropriate response is for us to put on our Sunday best and dance. Dance and sing with joy. Now, such expressions of joy in the Bible are not a Pollyannish optimism that blinks reality or denies the tragic side of life. No, biblical living is quite familiar with the many dimensions of human suffering. Exile, loneliness, persecution, oppression, death even. In all of it, however, God's faithful people continue to be joyful. Why? Not because our circumstances are wonderful, but because of God's presence through it all and his promise that regardless of circumstance, God will not let go, will not abandon, but will always be with God's people, wherever they are, whatever is happening to them. That is biblical joy. So all of that may be well and good, you're thinking. But getting back to the parable for a moment, we still have left one question unanswered. Even if the point of the parable is to invite us into more fruitful living, doesn't it seem rather harsh, nasty even, to toss the poor guy who forgot his robe into the outer darkness with all that weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> what are we to make of such dark and threatening imagery? Well, first of all, we should be honest. Most mainline Protestants, whether we're Episcopalian or Lutheran, get a little uncomfortable with such language of judgment we would much rather focus on God's unconditional love. That's a lot more comfortable. But true faithfulness leads through, not around, judgment. The Bible teaches that over and over again. To say that God loves us as we are is not to say God leaves us as we are. God continually calls us to better and wiser ways of living and to deeper and more generous ways of loving. In judging us, God's desire is not to condemn, but to purify. Listen to what St. John says, chapter 3, verse 17. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the whole world might be saved through him. The aim of God's judgment is always to redeem the holy in a person, to preserve the good by pruning away the bad bits in all of us so that everyone might be made a new creation. God's desire is not, as our Puritan forebears sometimes thought, to consign the unworthy among us to hell. No, it is to beckon everyone into a recreated new Jerusalem. 
You see, a basic theological truth that we too often ignore is this. As a matter of logic, in order for God to be the source of all goodness, God must be opposed to all forms of evil. In order for God to be the source of all truth, God must be opposed to all forms of deceit. In order for God to be the source of justice, God must be opposed to all forms of oppression and injustice. God judges because he cares about protecting us from all that corrupts and destroys his good creation. God, in short, wants only good things for us and for all of his creatures. Which is to say, don't worry if you have forgotten to put on your baptismal garment today because God will not leave you naked in the outer darkness for too long. For if we know anything about our God from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it is that we have a forgiving, merciful, and patient God, a God of second and third and fourth chances, a God who chases down every lost sheep, a God who always welcomes home a prodigal child, a God who was willing to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. One final but important observation about this parable. Tragically, this parable has often been misused by the church in anti-Semitic ways to justify a form of Christian triumphalism, the view that God took the kingdom away from the Jewish people, often seen as the first faithless group of invited guests in the parable, and gave it instead to the Gentiles, the second more obedient group of invited guests. That is not what the text says, and such an interpretation completely ignores many things, not the least of which is Jesus' identity as a Jew, the fact that all of his initial followers were Jews, and that Matthew's church in particular was almost exclusively Jewish. In the parable, Jesus is not drawing a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. He is drawing a distinction between people who live faithful, fruitful lives on the one hand, and those who don't on the other, whether they be Jew or Gentile. As Christians living in an all-too-violent and divided world, it is time for us to renounce such anti-Jewish distortions of the gospel message. Indeed, at this particular moment in history, when our Jewish brothers and sisters are under attack by organizations committed, genocide, it is especially incumbent upon us to insist that the Jesus of the Gospels and the risen Christ we know and love wants everyone to feast at his table and welcomes everyone into the new Jerusalem that is our common destiny. So let me conclude by offering a prayer for all of the people of the Holy Land. 
O God of all justice and peace, we cry out to you in the midst of the pain, trauma of violence, and fear which prevails in the Holy Land. Be with those who need you in these days of suffering. We pray for people of all faiths, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, and for everyone who lives in this sacred land. Help us to set aside our hateful ways and guide us into your new Jerusalem where all people are treated with dignity and honor as your children. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.